Um, as you will notice, uh, I'm not Mark Wilson, contrary to the bulletin. So the insert in the bulletin is a little different uh, than what's there this morning. Uh, I will be looking at Acts chapter 4 this morning. So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Acts 4, 23 through 31. The title of this morning's message is God's Triumphant Plan. God's Triumphant Plan. Acts 4. As you study through church history, as you read the, the Bible, you will find that persecution is not something unfamiliar to the people of God. So it is good for us to be prepared for persecution before it even begins. It's not time to prepare when you're in the midst of it. When you're in the midst of the rejection and the opposition and the hatred or the visible, you must realize that at all times, fallen man hates God and hates his people, but there are times throughout history where it becomes more evident. So it's good for us to prepare for persecution before it gets here. If we escape it, it would be uh, rare. It is more common that God's people have suffered throughout time. So let's think, even since the beginning of the church, our brothers and sisters have faced it, so let's be ready for it. And as you, as you think about it, in persecution the church has faced, the thought came to my mind, question is, what is it that has driven men and women, to, uh, men and women throughout church history to proclaim Christ, to live for Christ, and even die for Christ with great boldness? What is it that has driven them to that? We can go back to Acts chapter 4 here to find the answer to that question as we look at really the first incident in the church history of persecution. We're led to look at the apostles, the way they speak, the way they act so courageously in the face of opposition, and it will help us answer the question, what is it that drives us in the face of opposition? Now, Acts 4, 23-31, you might have noticed, is parachuting into the end of a story, end of a, a section of Scripture. So let's do a little review. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, uh, this is after Pentecost, so the Spirit has come. We have the birth of the church. Peter and John go to the temple. As they walk in the temple, there's a lame man there begging. Uh, he asks them, just like he would other people, for alms, for money. And Peter looks at him and says, I, I got nothing. But what I do have, I give to you. And he heals him in the name of Jesus, or the Lord heals him more so. And the man gets up, and they go into the temple together, the court, and praising God, rejoicing. The man's jumping around. And if you were in that crowd, you'd be one of those people to do a double take of, wasn't that just the guy that was at the gate? Asking for what, what's going on? And so it draws a crowd. Now, Peter taking advantage of this opportunity, begins to preach to the people to tell them how this happened. It happened through Jesus Christ. And so he preaches. He, he's pretty straightforward with them, too. He tells the people about Jesus and how they killed him. They crucified the author of life, and yet God raised him from the dead. And so you need to repent and turn again to the Lord and so as the people are listening, we arrive in Acts chapter 4, and we find out, to no surprise, the religious leaders ain't too happy about that. They are greatly annoyed by Peter and John and what's going on. And so they 
as Peter and John are preaching and annoying the religious leaders because, because of what? If you look at Acts chapter 4, verse 2, they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They weren't necessarily annoyed by the miracle. They were annoyed by the fact that these men were teaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ. Now this whole narrative is issue, and it comes down to an issue of, of authority. Who gave you the right to do this? They didn't like that they were, Peter and John were doing this because, well, they didn't give them the permission to do that. And so they arrest Peter and John, and the next day, after they're in prison overnight, they interrogate them. Interesting, the same Sanhedrin that just interrogated and sent Jesus to be crucified is now interrogating Peter and John. And they ask him, by what power or what by, by what name did you do this? And so we get to Acts 4, 7 through 12, and, G, and Peter proclaims the exclusivity and the power of Christ. That it is by Jesus this man has been healed. By the way, this Jesus is the cornerstone whom you rejected. That's a good way to be let go, let free. Just, just accuse them of something. No, he's not holding back. You killed him. He was the cornerstone. You rejected him. You should have been watching for the Messiah, yet you crucified the Messiah. And by the way, look at verse 12. He says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no authority. There's no other power. There's no other source. There's no other way. It is through Jesus Christ alone. And so this is what Peter says to his accusers the people interrogating him and so what do they do well we hit verses 13 through 22 or we see the response of the Sanhedrin they send them away for a while discuss what are we going to do with these guys you know they and then they bring them back and give them their answer it's interesting no they didn't deny that a miracle was done it was recognized but they really wanted to stop Peter and John from proclaiming this Jesus. They wanted to stop the church because of its verbal proclamation of Jesus. Don't speak or teach it all in his name. Their hardness of heart is revealed by though they saw the work of God, they are repulsed by it. They are kept from seeing the goodness of it and then the message that it pointed to. Again, it wasn't the supernatural work of healing. It was the evangelism. Even, even the world has, if we think even this day, even the world has their false signs, their hat tricks to try to impress. Go all the way back to Exodus. You have Pharaoh's magicians who tried to do some magic tricks to keep up with Moses and what the signs he was giving, and yet they can only go so far until Yahweh is shown to be the supreme one. There, were, there was demonic working all throughout the Old and New Testaments. You even think of the, the scary passage in Matthew 7 where many will stand before the Lord on that day and say, hey, didn't we do all these things in your name? These miraculous, amazing things. And what does Jesus say to them? Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Even the world has their false signs. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But it's not the tricks that's the problem for the world. It's the message. 
It's the message that calls people to submit to Jesus. That is the message that angers the world. (laughs) But in the amazing work of God, he flips it and makes that also the message that saves the lost world. You think about what upset these religious leaders. It was the proclamation of Jesus. If other religious, think about for us, if, even like them, if, if other religious groups and the government were to be upset with us, would it be because we talk about Jesus everywhere? Or would it be for some other reason? For Peter and John, it was because of the preaching about Jesus. And they proclaimed it boldly. Verses 19 through 20 would find them say, well, we must proclaim what we have seen and heard. You guys go ahead and decide whether you think it's right between you and God, whether we should stop or not, but we are compelled, we cannot help but keep preaching Jesus. In fact, that was their mission, right? To be witnesses of Jesus. They must obey the authority of God who commissioned them to be his witnesses to the end of the world. Now note the context here. The agitation of the the religious leaders, the context of obeying God over man, the context points to the preaching of the gospel, not personal liberties and freedoms. It was because they stood strongly on the conviction of This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. And this is what I must faithfully proclaim because he told me so. So do what you want, but I'm going to be faithful to Jesus. So what happens? Well, the Sanhedrin threatens them some more, and then they let them go. Mainly because they're just afraid of all the other people who had seen this work done. And so they let him go, and and that brings us up to our text for today. And we're left as we finish verse 22 with the question, how are they going to respond now in the face of this opposition? How are they going to respond? Are they going to listen to man and turn away from preaching the truth they've been commissioned to do, or are they going to plow on forward? Well, let's see. Let's read Acts 4, 23-31. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and whatever your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Think of this 
passage is like a three-leaf clover. There are three leaves to this that bring one main point. There's the first leaf is a gathering intentionally, gathering intentionally. Then we'll see praying with God's perspective, followed by continuing the mission. And all of that is to drive the point that God is the master whose plan triumphs over all opposition. God is the master whose plan triumphs over all opposition. Now, now, now think big picture here, book of Acts. This is written by Luke, same Luke who wrote the gospel according to Luke. He did his research, his homework, compiles this, and he's writing Acts to tell of how the church has grown and how the Christians were faithful to be witnesses of the gospel. So what we see is the gospel is going out. People are being saved by God, just as God had planned, even in the midst of beginning hostility, which starts here in Acts 4. First, verse 23, we see a gathering intentionally. Gathering intentionally. The believers gathered together even after facing opposition. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends. They go to their brethren. The Sanhedrin tried to stop the church and its growth, but we still see them gathering. So it's just interesting to note this passing comment. What is the first thing Peter and John did after they were released from prison? What's the first thing you or I would do besides hit up the McDonald's on the way back? Sorry, Chick-fil-A, that's more, unless it's a Sunday. What's the first thing they do? They go to, the ESV says their friends, a more literal translation would be they went to their own. They went to their own. Their own companions. Their fellow believers. Their people like them. Their family, their church family. One writer summarizes Luke adding this little in here and how it's so interesting. It says, quote, The expression is not accidental as it presses the point of how the early church saw itself as a community of mutually supportive friends. They went to their own. You're one of me. You're like, like me. I'm like you. Why? Why do they do that? Well, because we're all body of believers. The body of believers was a priority for the Christians. They, they valued and cherished one another. And we've got to ask, well, why wouldn't they, Right? Why wouldn't they? they? The church is the gathering of those who've been saved by Jesus. We're a, a group with a common love. We're a group with a common Lord, a group with a common mission, a group that will spend all eternity together. And so the local church was a treasure to them and ought to be a treasure to us. We are each other's own. And so they go to them and they report their experience and what was told to them, what was warned. <laughs> I just, I find it so funny because they're just told, don't you go back and talk about Jesus to anyone else. And so what do they do? They go back and talk about Jesus and what he's done. It points to the God because they saw that God is the master whose plan triumphs over all oppositions. While the enemies of the early church wanted to stop them or just, just wanted them to just go away you're just a pest. God's plan is to build his church and to continually build it. And God's 
people are to gather together even after persecution, showing that God's ways always will triumph over man's plans. world says don't talk about Jesus. So what does the church do? We talk about Jesus. Not because we're trying to be hateful to the world, but because this is what we've been commanded to do. And beyond that, this is because we love to do that. It's a priority to us. It's our life. We recognize God's sovereign authority in all of our activities, not just our Sunday morning, but everything. And so the apostles' actions here in this situation are helpful for us to just reflect on what's our attitude towards the local church. Is it like their attitude was? Do we prioritize the church like these early Christians did? Whether in our hardships or our joys, do we go to our own, our brothers and sisters in Christ? Are we drawn back there? Or do we still wrestle with the flesh that wants to just isolate ourselves? We see they go to their own, and then what do they do? They lift up their voice and pray together. Verses 24 through 30. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Together to God. This is praying with God's perspective. A prayer that has God's perspective about rejection. They come together and they pray together. Yes, it is good to pray individually, but we should also prioritize praying corporately with one another. They lift up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord. This whole account has been a conflict over who truly has the authority. All the way back to the questioning that they received before the Sanhedrin, you know, what name, what power, what authority do you do this? Well, it was Jesus' name, Jesus' authority, Jesus' power, which the Sanhedrin didn't approve of. So the battle is, okay, in your response going forward, who has the authority to tell you what to do? Was it the Jewish leaders or is it God? And as, as we approach this prayer, we can ask the question to kind of understand the prayer better and how it impacts us when we say, who really is in charge? When I read this prayer, who really is in charge? Because it's going to answer that for us. It begins, Sovereign Lord. God is the sovereign master over all. They, they address him as Sovereign Lord. The ESV says, one translation just says, Lord Another says, Master, all of those are sufficient. They are trying to capture the essence of one word. Interestingly, this is a different word than the word we would typically find for Lord. That would be kurios. This is the word despotes, which the meaning is one who has legal control and authority over persons, such as subjects or slaves. They are highlighting an aspect about God that he has the legal control and authority over everyone. Actually, not just everyone. They'll go talk about he made the heaven and the earth over everything. The creator has right to dictate how this universe functions, operates, what it does. He has such power. God is the one who has the supreme, absolute power and authority over all creation and all nations. 
And as much as the Jewish leaders and the Gentile rulers have tried to destroy the works of God, the words of God, the spread of the gospel, they cannot. Church history is just a testimony to that, which is why it's fascinating to read. In the background of reading, anything about church history should be going through your mind. God will build his church. Nothing can stop God. All that happens is under God Almighty's sovereign control, and it happens according to his plan, which is really great news for us in Christ. But I will go one step further and say that it is the best news, the best thing for all of creation. The best thing for creation is that God the Creator and the Redeemer is in control. Whether the world wants to recognize and submit to him or not, it is still the best thing. And if God wasn't in control, this would be a terrifying universe to live in. I would not want to be here living in this universe. You ever think about that as you, as you talk to your unsaved friends, family, neighbor, that they are operating from a mindset that God's not in control. Now, whether they believe it or not, it doesn't matter. He is in control. But what a terrifying way to live your life. And like, we're living right next to these people and we've got the news to say, no, 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 hey, there's good news. First, to realize how bad you are and then second, God is in control. And he, he sent his son to die for you and there's eternal hope. And this world is not just gonna fall apart with no one running you know, the ship at the helm. There is certainty. Now this, this prayer gives us some more characteristics about our true master here, our sovereign Lord. First is he is the creator. The sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is how they address God in their prayer, which note for us to take how do we pray? They address God in their prayer rightfully as he is. He is the creator, and that's essential. That's a good starting point. All of us should be there. If, if you throw out that God is the creator, or people want to wiggle around with Genesis or jettison it for some reason, whether because they want to make room for science or their friend's opinion, or they just don't want to submit to God. If you get rid of that, then you got to get rid of the whole Bible. If there's no certainty that God created everything as he says he did, how do you know there's certainty in the rest of the Bible? We begin that he is the creator, and beloved, he made it as he said he made it. He spoke it into existence out of nothing in six 24-hour consecutive days. Please don't give that up. Especially don't give it up for the fear of man. Fear the Lord over man. Believe what he says. Since God is the master and creator, he is the one in control, and he has the right to do all he pleases. That's Psalm 115.3. That means all he pleases in our lives, all he pleases in our salvation, all he pleases in the governing of nations, all he pleases in the rising and tearing down of nations. All he pleases in history, and all of creation must submit to the creator. And I will just say now, better to do so today 
by repenting and trusting in Christ than in the end time being forced to submit to him. You're going to submit one way or the other. You will bow the knee one way or the other. Better to flee to Christ so that your submission is from a heart of love and reconciliation to him. So we learn he is the creator. We also learn from verse 25 that he is the God who speaks. He is the God who speaks. It says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. God is a God who speaks. doesn't have to, but he has not remained silent. Since he said, let there be light, God has continued to speak. And he continued to speak by the revealing of his word. Through the revealing of his word. This is the self-disclosure of God. You get the inside scoop of what God's like. Of what you, are, you and I are like. Of what redemption is. Of what God is going to do in the future. God has revealed that to us so graciously. We don't deserve it. And you know, we were made... Mankind was made, we were created to know God, to know the God who speaks, to enjoy God, to commune with God. And we can still do that as we were intentionally designed to do when we trust in Jesus. We can enjoy that communion, that fellowship. It should be there. Now, it doesn't mean he's speaking to us verbally, verbally or out loud. He speaks to us through his word. Right? This is what the Bible, what we learn, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. It comes from Him, so it matches His character. So He is the God of truth. His Word is truth. We know from 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, it says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, that's what the prayer is referring to here. David said, by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the means by which the Scriptures have come to us. He spoke through men, and we now have it. Oh, we are so blessed. Think about the time of the, the early church. They didn't have this completely, and we do. Multiple copies, typically, as well. We are so blessed to have all of it. What, do we, what should it be? our attitude be towards God's word? Believe it, trust it, obey it. Believe it, trust it, obey it. So he's the creator. He is the God who speaks. But he is also the one true ruler. He goes on and quotes Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. And the whole point of this psalm is that the Gentile nations and the people are against God and his Messiah. They're described as raging against him. The idea behind that word is a rude, disrespectful, arrogant attitude towards God. It carries, the word was often used in relation to animals. It has this pictures of, picture of animals just worked up and restless and animated and just constantly scattering on the go. And as one writer said, it's such as like snorting horses before a race. They just, just can't wait. They're just constantly just eager. 
Well, that's what fallen man is like. There's no respect or submission to the Lord. There's this constant vigor to rebel against him, to do what I want when I want. Don't you dare get in my way. People spend, unbelievers spend their time on vain and futile things. They are vigorously scheming to try to rebel, to get their sins gratified, the passions of their heart, to shake their fist at God, do all that they can to defy him. It is mindless foolishness. And the psalm teaches here that though man plots and though man tries with much energy to stand against God and his Messiah, it's useless. It's useless. God will have the victory. He will have the victory. Now, if that's the point of the psalm, then we can see, start to see why the church referenced this psalm in their prayer. Because the, those in charge have stood against God, and they've stood against his message of salvation in Jesus' name. And though the Jewish leaders should have recognized the work of God, they should have recognized the Messiah and should have submitted to him, they gave all their might in effort to try and stop the spread of the gospel, to try to get rid of the Messiah. They tried. He ended up in the grave for three days, and then he rose again. Showing the victory of God. They cannot stop God. They cannot stop the plan of God. They cannot stop the work of God. God is the real victor. And we will ultimately see this victory. We'll see it fully when, when Christ returns. But even, even now, we do see the effects of God's victory when he, through the gospel working, breaks the hard heart of sinners. Takes the rebel and makes them a saint. When he saves people, changes the hearts of sinful man, the mind of sinful man, that is the effect of the victorious God working in this world. In verse 27, he gives us an application of this psalm, of their raging, their fighting against the Lord and his anointed. It says, verse 27, for truly in the city they there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. This is an application to the rulers of that time, the people of that time, that they are just like the psalm says. They are those who rage against God, against, calls Jesus the holy servant Holy servant. He called David a servant back in verse 25, but here he calls Jesus the holy servant. And it's interesting, the word for servant is a little different than we would often think. This term is often used to describe a child. Now, in the context, it's referring to adults, but it is adults who are characterized by a loyalty to the ultimate master, a devotion to the master. That master is God himself. And so the people of Jesus' time raged against him. You had Herod, who was a half-Jew. You had Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor at that time there, the Gentiles, who were the Romans, and the people of Israel, from their leaders, who had just threatened the apostles, to all the people themselves. They rejected and killed the Messiah, Jesus. They are held responsible for that raging. They are held responsible by God because... They did what they wanted. 
They did what they loved the most. And you know what they loved? The darkness. Their sin. They hated the light. And so they tried to get rid of the light of the world. You ever think what it was like for them who still rejected Christ or around at that time when they died and stood before the Lord? That's a terrifying place to be. But even in this, even in their raging and their rejecting and their killing, we see verse 28 that God is the master planner. God is the master planner. Verse 28, they did all that. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Remember what the psalm was teaching? Though people stubbornly fight against God, he is the ultimate victor. Well, God is the master of all history and all redemption. This was part of his plan. Why? To redeem you and me. Yes, man is held responsible for his sins. Peter would say that, Acts 2. He talks about, you crucified and killed Jesus. You killed the author of life, whom you, Jesus, whom you crucified. We think of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What we naturally deserve and earn for our sins ought to be death. Think of Romans 2, 1-3, through 3, we're dead in our sins and transgressions. Not only are we dead in that, but there's no relation between us and God in a positive way. We are instead children of wrath who go about in the passions of our flesh. We just... We just want to follow the course of the world and whatever our hearts tell us, which, by the way, are deceitful, so don't follow your heart. These people were held responsible for the murder of the Messiah, but it also was part of God's predetermined plan. They're both true. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, you're probably familiar with it, but it uses wording like this to describe God's plan. It speaks of us being chosen before the foundation of the world, being predestined, being predestined according to the purpose of His will, God's will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, set forth in Christ as a plan. For what? As a plan for the fullness of time. He's predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's a lot of him, his. Not my will, not my plan. I would mess it up anyway. But he is the one that has determined what to do. Man, it's a good thing he does too. Isaiah 46 touches on this as well, all the way back from the Old Testament. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. says this, For I am God, this is Yahweh speaking, and there is no other. For I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. goes on to say, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. All that happens is governed by the predetermined, preordained plan of God. And I know people naturally want to fight against that and push back and say, no, it's my will. But I would ask, why? Isn't it a good thing that God is the one orchestrating and controlling all this? It's good it's not dependent on us. 
I mean, we recognize too, right, that God is in control. Isaiah 53, we love that passage. It's a great passage about the prophecy of the suffering servant who would bear the sins of others to make them accounted righteous. We know that then ultimately being fulfilled in Jesus, he is the suffering servant, but that was prophesied about all the way back in the Old Testament before it ever happened. Well, if God wasn't in control, how do we know that that would have ever happened? It's good that he's in control because that came to be and then be through that most terrible event, the greatest good came that you and I are saved from the wrath of God for our sins. God uses sin sinlessly to bring about his will. He's not the author of sin, he's not the cause of sin, and yet in his power and righteousness, he redirects the worst of ways to be flipped to accomplish the greatest of goods. And there are still those who want to rebel against the sovereignty of God until you had a hardship in their life and they run to Romans 8, 28. And we know the verse, we love the verse, God works all things together for good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. Well, if God is not the master planner working out his will, how can we guarantee that those, good, that those things are gonna be used for our good? But he is the master planner. And there's such certainty as those verses that we can take it to the bank that God, your word says this. And so I'm gonna put my hope there because you said it. The people acted in accordance with what God had determined and set to happen by his authority and power. And so the plan of salvation is God-planned, it's God-centered, it's God-driven, and it's all for the glory of God. We get to bring to the table the sin that needs paid for, and then we walk away from the table with eternal blessings, eternal life, reconciliation with our creator. We really profit in that. Think about it. But God's sovereignty and human responsibility are both present. To reject one or the other is to ignore what the scripture has clearly revealed. And so you might wonder, okay, well, how do I harmonize that tension between, and settle the tension that God is in control and yet man is still responsible? Here's how we do it. We hold the both. Side by side. Both are true it's like two paths that run together and eventually they meet and there you see where it makes sense but it's way beyond our vision and it's settled in the mind of God it's not confusing to God which is really good news it's not confusing to him so we hold them both to be true and we walk by faith J.I. Packer has written in his book uh Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which if you have not read it, I would encourage you to do so. It's a tiny little book on this topic. He says this, quote, C.H. Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And he says this, I wouldn't try, he replied. I never reconcile friends. Friends? Yes, friends. This is the point we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together. End quote. Isn't that good that God knows things far beyond what we know? 
If God was going to save sinners as he planned to do, then it was necessary for Jesus to die. Blood had to be shed, life had to be given to wash away the penalty of our sin. The plan of salvation for God, uh, from God had to be worked out, and it was worked out. Yet men in their hardness of heart, their hatred for God, their love for themselves, their sin, they rejected God. They killed the Savior. But in the amazing plan of God, in killing the Savior, it accomplished the atonement that our, our sins needed. The ransom was paid. The wrath towards our sin was exhausted. And it was perfectly and sufficiently accomplished. And that gift is offered to you if you repent and trust in Christ. Submit to him. And if you haven't, please do so today. Stop gambling with your eternity. Please. See, God is the one who is in control. He is the one with a victorious plan over his enemies. And what appeared to be the greatest, the biggest defeat in all of history at the cross turned out to be the most marvelous victory. God was triumphant in his plan for Jesus to pay for our sins. And he had has a plan to grow his church and that plan is succeeding and one day his plan will culminate with all the redeemed, all of us being with the Lord in glory where sin is completely removed from us and that will be a great day. Now verse 29, we finally get to the petition of the prayer. This is what they ask. Look upon, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So in light of God, you are in control, you are the victor, and that, that sovereignty of you brings comfort and sure assurance, it brings stability, that's the bedrock that my supplication rests upon. Now I ask, please grant us boldness. Look upon it, take concern of our situation, know what's going on, we're your servants, we'll do whatever you say, Please give us now boldness. Give us courage and confidence to proclaim your word. Now, notice what they did not ask for. What did they not ask for? They didn't ask for relief in hard times. They didn't ask for the hardships to go away. They didn't ask for comfort. They asked for boldness. Boldness to be faithful in the mission that was given. And that boldness is grounded upon trust in the sovereign God. God is working out his plan. God is building his church. God is with me always, right? Isn't that what Jesus said in the Great Commission? I'll be with you always. And so I'm going to rest and trust in that, and I'm going to be faithful to continue the work. Now they affirm, verse 30, that the Lord was doing miracles, it was happening a lot at the time of the apostles. You read in the book of Acts, those miracles were meant to attest to that the message of the apostles, this new message was legitimate. It was actually, a, uh, was from God. They weren't just some heretical group that came out of nowhere and who are you, we shouldn't listen to you. No, 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 they were pointing back always to the speaking of God's word, to the legitimacy of God's word. The miracles just attested during the foundation setting phase as Paul says in Ephesians 2, 20. But notice, God is the author and the doer of the miracles, not the apostles. They don't ask to let us do the wonders. It's you. You do as you see fit. In the meantime, give us the boldness to proclaim the gospel. And so what does God do? Well, he will answer that prayer. And we'll see that in verse 31. 
But before we get there, just let us think about this. In regard to the sovereignty of God, let it strengthen our witness and our lifestyle. Let it strengthen it. That we're not wandering out here with a God who's just not really sure what's going to happen. We can be certain because we know the one in charge. We can share the gospel with our neighbor even if we are scared to do so. God will give us the strength we need. Lastly, the continuing the mission, continuing the mission, verse 31, and we'll wrap this up. God gives the visible answer to the church's prayer in a hostile environment. This is God's answer. We notice when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Would have been a crazy thing to see, to experience. The place was physically shaken. Uh, this is not a prescription for us. Don't worry, we're not going to try to create an earthquake next Sunday. Okay? <laughs> this is a rarity, but it should draw back to our mind Exodus 19, 18, which says this, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it a fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Why did the mountain tremble? Because the Lord was there. And so you see this affirmation from God that he hears and he's with them, as he said he would be, with the shaking. The believers then are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this is different than the indwelling of the Spirit, which should remind us of Ephesians 1, 13, and 14. That's permanent. Filling of the Spirit has the idea of being controlled by the Spirit, submitting to the Spirit, His working in our life being strengthened by him. And the result of that filling, interesting, it's not more signs and wonders. It is continue, continue to speak the word of God with boldness. The result of being filled with the Spirit was the continued proclamation with boldness of the word of God. And that's what they'd asked for. They asked for boldness, and so the Lord gave it to them. So come back to the question, how are you going to go, how are you going to go forward now, apostles, early church, in the face of the threat of opposition? They're going to do it with boldness as they continue to proclaim the word of God. They're going to be faithful and they're going to proclaim boldly. And God will continue to build his church because God is the master whose plan triumphs over all opposition. Spare me just a couple minutes. I want to take just a few application points. Let's think about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, right? This whole prayer centers around the sovereignty of God. Let's take that high-level doctrine and bring it down to our life. How does it impact me, okay? So it should not just sit on our bookshelves. It should be changing our lives. Let's think of it from the three elements of this three-leaf clover in gathering. How does the sovereignty of God impact our gathering? Well, God in his sovereignty decided to unite us together in one body who trust in Christ. And so if God found that to be of essence so important, we ought to find that important too. It should be a priority. How about from prayer? How does the sovereignty of God impact my prayer? Well, it impacts it hugely. Okay? I can ask and believe that God can answer my prayers. I mean, we are dependent upon the Lord in our daily life. We're dependent on him for to work in us, to work through us. And if we didn't think he was sovereign in control, why would we go to him and ask for things? 
By default, our prayer rests on our sovereign God. By default, when we pray, we give lip service to, actually, he's the sovereign one and I'm not because I need to run to him for help. And so I can come to him with boldness because of what Christ has done and remember, he can answer that prayer. I mean, do we, we remember that, right? God can answer our prayer. God does answer our prayer. We can shape our prayer like the apostles with adoration, with praise of God, filling them with the truth of who God is, what he is doing, and let that be the foundation of my requests. Praying, God, help me to be faithful and bold in the mission to make disciples and be your witness. How does, how does the sovereignty of God affect the mission of the church, your mission to go and make disciples? Well, it brings a boldness, a courage, a hope in evangelism, because guess what? God said in his plan he is going to build his church. People are going to get saved. That we're just the messenger. But in sharing that, God is going to save people. You know how great this is? Because that means, like, I don't, as terrified, this is an honest truth, as terrified as I am to share the gospel with my Muslim neighbor, it's not up to me to change his heart or his mind. I just, I just open my mouth and share the truth. And I can have courage because God is the one that will do the work. The story shows us God is the master whose plan triumphs over all opposition. That is the understanding that men and women from church history have been driven by. To, to proclaim Christ, to live for Christ, and die with, for Christ with great boldness is because God is the master. May we learn from them and imitate their faithfulness, be encouraged that we're not alone in this. And may we endeavor to be faithful to the sovereign Lord and bold in the mission he has given us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word that reminds us here that you are the one with the plan who does as you determined. And that's good because we are not omniscient. We are not all wise. We are not all present. But you are. And we thank you, Lord, that your plan includes saving sinners like us, actually saving us. We give you the praise for that, Lord. May we have the boldness to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ with our neighbors, with our family. May we remember that you are the one that changes hearts. We are just the messengers. Father, as we approach the Lord's table, as we approach communion, may we examine our own hearts see if there be any sin that we are, have been unwilling to repent of, if there's any reconciliation we need to find with our brother or sister. May we put those things the way that sin away and find seek that reconciliation. May we come to it with a sobriety to realize we are sinners before a holy God, but because of Christ we are made holy. And Father, may we also come to it with joy because our great Savior lives and reigns. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.